You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Plato once said, Only the dead have seen the end of war. Or I should say that Douglas MacArthur once said that Plato once said that only the dead have seen the end of war, because as near as anyone can tell, Plato did not. George Santayana once said only the dead have seen the end of war, but whether he coined the phrase or not, and whether MacArthur mistook him for Plato somehow, is uncertain. Regardless of who said it, or how many said it, or when it was first said, the point still holds as do so many of the great descriptions of war, which are, to a T, admonitions, laments, or at best, heavily qualified defenses of behavior universally understood to be avoided whenever possible. The true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him, said Chesterton, in about as glowing an endorsement of the practice as literature provides. Similarly, there is a perennial quest to find the good war, a thing which can be accomplished by looking very purposefully in some directions, while even more purposefully failing to look in others. The Union side of the American Civil War looks pretty noble if you can force yourself to believe that the North's main aim was the abolishment of slavery. There are a lot of inspiring songs about the French Revolution, but many fewer about what came after. World War II, the most lauded of all good wars, requires similar blinders to maintain its title. The Nazis were a uniquely evil force in the world. So as long as you keep that in top of mind, the Allies' fight against them looks quite moral. Bend your head a little, though, and you start to pick up on the many war crimes committed by those moral allies. Really crane your neck, and you'll see the sometimes rank indifference those allies showed to the plights of many of those they purportedly saved, not to mention the precipitating conditions they imposed to make the war possible in the first place. No, there is but one undeniably good war. And it ended just a little less than a year ago. A nearly 50-year conflict over this tiny island now resolved. Two friendly nations making peace at a time of war. Clearly what we're showing today is that um, you don't redraw boundaries on through the barrel of a gun. If it sounds like Canadian Minister of Foreign Affairs Melanie Jolie is subtweeting somebody with that comment... Allow the Danish Minister of Foreign Affairs, Jeppe Kofod, to make it more explicit. I hope that message will get to President Putin, although I'm not naive about what messages he takes. Hint, hint, wink, wink. 
Look, I too would like Putin to end his monomaniacal territorial ambitions, but I'm not sure if Jolie and Kofod really earned their smug superiority here. Canada and Denmark are, after all, allies. And what they were fighting over was the most meager of possible prizes, Hans Island, half a square mile of barren, desolate rock smack dab between Greenland and Ellesmere Island. Nothing grows on Hans Island. No one lives on Hans Island. There is no oil there, or gold, or phosphates, or anything of any value whatsoever. Yet, it still took at least 38 years to settle the fight. We can easily take it back much further to 1880, when Great Britain transferred over its Arctic territories to Canada. To carry out that process, Britain had relied on some old maps, which didn't include Hans Island, leaving the hunk of stone a proverbial no-man's land until 1933, when the Permanent Court of International Justice declared it for Greenland, and therefore Denmark. Unfortunately, the Permanent Court proved anything but. It was dissolved in 1946, and with it went the Greenland decision. For the next 30 years, the exact dividing line between Canada and Greenland was disputed in many places, up until December of 1973, when Canada and Denmark signed an official agreement laying down that boundary. Except for one eensy teensy little bit. Hans Island. Neither country was willing to give up Hans Island, so it was left ambiguous in the 1973 agreement. For the next decade, each nation harmlessly claimed it as their own, which didn't really matter since there was nothing on Hans Island and nobody ever went there. Then, somebody did. In 1984, Canadian troops landed on Hans Island, they erected the maple leaf flag there. They put up a sign reading, Welcome to Canada. And most provocatively of all, they left behind the surest sign of Canadian occupation, a bottle of whiskey. Directly after, Denmark responded. The Minister of Greenland Affairs came to Hans Island. He lowered the Canadian flag and raised the Danish one. He removed the Welcome to Canada sign, replacing it with one which said, naturally, Welcome to the Danish Island. And did he take the whiskey? Friends, you know he did. But he left behind a fair exchange, a bottle of schnapps. These were the first shots, that's an inadvertent pun, in what has come to be known as the Whiskey War. Every couple of years, a Canadian warship would travel to Hans Island, raise a flag and a welcome sign, and leave behind a bottle of whiskey. And every few years, a Danish warship would answer in turn, raising their own flag and sign, and leaving a bottle of schnapps. The 
the Whiskey War was, without competition, the friendliest war ever waged. Yet even though its belligerents were allies, even though the dispute was over something of no value, hell, even though there was a convenient and obvious fissure running directly down the middle of Hans Island like it was just begging for resolution, it still took nearly 40 years to make peace. Maybe everybody just liked the free booze. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. War is hell. It can also, under the right circumstances and with the sufficient distance, be pretty entertaining. This time around, we're going to wend our way through some of the most ridiculous wars ever fought, on our way to the dark horse competitor for the title of Stupidest War in History. Today's episode, This Means War, Volume 2. The Whiskey War isn't the only stupid territorial conflict involving Canada, and it's certainly not the only territorial conflict that stemmed from bad British maps. The next stop on our tour involves both things, and it is the story that listeners have suggested that I tell more than any other single one. I'm referring, as many of you already excitedly know, to the Pig War. Yes, the Pig War, named both for its inciting incident and only casualty. On June 15th, 1859, said pig was minding its own business, eating potatoes. I say minding its own business only in the sense that pigs have no other business to mind, because by human standards, the business very much did not belong to the pig. And by the business, I mean, of course, the potatoes. They, in fact, had been planted and grown by Lyman Cutler, an American farmer who had settled on San Juan Island in the far-flung Pacific Northwest between Vancouver Island to the west and what is now the state of Washington to the east. San Juan Island was so named by Spanish explorer Francisco de Eliza in honor of his patron, the Viceroy of New Spain, Juan Vicente de Guemes Padilla. In the 1450s, boy, that's a long while back, Pope Nicholas V had started issuing papal bulls that gave ownership of land to whatever Europeans discovered them, or at least gave the European nations that first landed places precedence over other European countries when it came time to negotiate, notice the stink I'm putting on that word, to negotiate ownership with indigenous peoples. But by the early 1800s, Spain was no longer tooling around the Pacific Northwest and no longer interested in colonizing the area, which left the matter of what Christian nation had the right, there's that stink again, to conquer the area in question. The two interested claimants were, as you might anticipate, Britain and the United States. And when they were unable to come to terms, they signed the 1818 Treaty of Joint Occupation of Oregon, which put most of what are now the states of California, Oregon, and Washington into a kind of diplomatic limbo where both countries could do what they pleased. 
This was not a permanent solution, but it was fine for the time being. The British Hudson's Bay Company wanted access to the Northwest for trapping and trading, but it wasn't very interested in actually settling the land. In fact, since trapping and trading were both impeded by heavy settlement, the Hudson's Bay Company preferred that nobody set down roots, which would mean the thinning of the wildlife they were trapping and displacement of the natives with whom they were trading. America, for its part, wasn't especially interested in doing anything with the Oregon Territory. It just didn't want to give up the land to England. So, the Joint Occupation Treaty worked well enough for everybody. Until 1844. The previous year, James Knox Polk had lost his bid for re-election as governor of Tennessee in an embarrassing defeat to lean Jimmy Jones, who managed to put Polk down by turning the debate stage into his own personal stand-up comedy Type 5. Having just been kicked out of one office, Polk had his sights set on a higher one, Vice President of the United States of America. He assumed that the one-term president, Martin Van Buren, would win the Democratic nomination for president and carefully constructed his own run to get on Van Buren's undercard. But Van Buren was in a tough spot. He had lost the support of the South when he publicly professed that, quote, Morally and politically speaking, slavery is an evil of the first magnitude, and whatever may be the consequences, it is our duty to prohibit its progress in all cases where such prohibition is allowed by the Constitution. But he hadn't won over abolitionists with this stance, since he thought it was unconstitutional to ban slavery where it already existed. And since, in spite of considering the practice an evil of the first magnitude, he nonetheless engaged in that evil, owning a slave. Not to mention that the western states of Michigan, Illinois, Iowa, Wisconsin held Van Buren personally responsible for the Panic of 1837. They turned their support to Michigan Senator and former Secretary of War, Lewis Cass, who we talked about when we covered one of history's other stupidest wars in the episode Holy Toledo. Slavery-supporting Southerners, in contrast, turned to the vociferously slave-happy John C. Calhoun one of the worst Americans in American history. On the first vote of the 1844 Democratic National Convention, Van Buren got a small majority, but the rules said he needed two-thirds support. In subsequent ballots, the votes peeled away to Cass, to Richard M. Johnson, to James Buchanan, but not enough delegates wanted any of them. So eventually, and almost by accident, they all agreed to nominate Polk, mainly because nobody knew anything about him. Of course, in a general election, nobody knowing anything about you isn't necessarily a strength, and it looked like the Whig candidate, former Speaker of the House and Kentucky Senator Henry Clay, would take the White House in a cakewalk. Unless Polk could come up with some defining issue, a message to rally the American people. Somewhat miraculously, he found it in a deliciously alliterative slogan, 5440 or fight. Polk told Americans that if they elected him president, he would expand the country. Everything south of 54 degrees, 40 minutes north latitude would be America. Texas, America. California, America. The Oregon Territory, America. And Americans bought it. 
they elected the otherwise obscure James K. Polk as their 11th president with the promise that he would take everything south of 5440 away from the British without compromise. Then he compromised. Worried that he would soon be fighting Mexico over Texas, and he would be too, President Polk came to the table with Britain and decided on a boundary five degrees south of his slogan. The border would run due west along the 49th parallel until it came to the west coast, at which point things got messy. The exact language of the Oregon Treaty divided the northwest, quote, along the 49th parallel of north latitude to the middle of the channel which separates the continent from Vancouver Island, and then southerly through the middle of the said channel and of the Strait of Juan de Fuca to the Pacific Ocean. What neither the Americans nor the Brits knew when they wrote up that language is that the map they were working with was incorrect. It showed one strait between the continent and Vancouver Island, when in fact there are two, Harrow Strait and Rosario Strait, and smack dab between them are the San Juan Islands. In 1856, now aware of the ambiguity, the U.S. and Britain convened a commission to settle the question of who owned San Juan Island, but while they were able to compromise on a number of other boundary disputes, the American and British commissioners came to an impasse on San Juan. The British said that Rosario Strait was the proper boundary. The Americans said no, it was Harrow. They each had their technical explanations for why which worked better, but the key thing was that the British opinion gave San Juan to the British and the American opinion gave it to the Americans. After a month of arguing, Admiral Provost of the British Navy offered a compromise to split San Juan right down the middle. His American counterpart, Archibald Campbell, refused. With the rest of the border properly delineated now, the two sides walked away agreeing to disagree on who controlled San Juan Island. A small group of American settlers, including Lyman Cutler, started building homesteads on the south end of the island. Meanwhile, the Hudson's Bay Company established a camp on the north side of the island, Bellevue Farm, where they raised a small flock of sheep, not to mention, critically, a couple of pigs one of which found its way into Cutler's Potatoes on June 15, 1859. It wasn't the first time the American settlers had gotten into a tiff with the Hudson's Bay employees. It wasn't the first time the pig had gotten into Cutler's garden either. But when he found said pig in his garden that day, he also found a company man standing nearby laughing at his misfortune. So, Cutler grabbed his gun and shot the boar dead. He then found the owner of the murdered swine, Charles Griffin, and told him what had happened. The conversation did not go well. The legendary account is that Cutler said it was Griffin's fault, since he said Griffin had a duty to keep the pig out of his potatoes. And in the legendary account, Griffin responded that it was Cutler who had the duty to keep his potatoes out of his pig. No reason to think that ever actually got said, but it's too good not to repeat anyway, which is, generally speaking, the problem with history. What definitely did happen is that Cutler offered Griffin recompense for his dead pig. Ten dollars seemed fair to him. 
Griffin countered, demanding that the pig was worth $100. Cutler said, no way, and the bargaining got more, uh, pointed. On the island at the time were two top-ranking officials with the Hudson's Bay Company, who soon confronted Cutler and told him that if he didn't fork over the hundred bucks, they would have him arrested. The American settlers were incensed by the threat. San Juan Island was, as far as they were concerned, the sovereign property of the United States, and they its legitimate citizens. No way were they going to stand by while some limey pricks manacled their friend and fellow farmer. On the 4th of July, the Americans gathered at a cabin just up the hill from, and in plain sight of, Bellevue Farm. They got absolutely pissed drunk and erected a 55-foot-tall flagpole. Then they hoisted Old Glory high above San Juan Island to flout their independence from the Brits down the hill. Five days later, the USS Massachusetts was steaming past San Juan Island when it noticed the American flag flying on the hill. On board the Massachusetts was its commander, Brigadier General William S. Harney, commander of the U.S. Department of Oregon. Either intrigued or concerned by the sight of the stars and stripes above an officially disputed territory, we will get back to Harney's motives in a few, he ordered the Massachusetts to drop anchor and bring him ashore to investigate. The settlers were all too happy to explain to Harney their position, and Harney was just as happy to hear them out. He told them to write up an official petition for military protection, which they then did. A week later, their support arrived in the person of Captain George Pickett. Yes, that George Pickett, along with 66 American soldiers from the 9th Infantry. Pickett's orders were to occupy the island and prevent the British from landing and arresting Cutler, but he did a piss-poor job of it. The British Navy had responded to Pickett's troops by sending three warships and a thousand soldiers to threaten the Americans. Pickett set up camp near the settlers' flagpole, putting the 9th Infantry in direct line of fire from the 31 cannons of the HMS Tribune. Pickett then announced that he was ready to die for the island, saying, we'll make a bunker hill of it. Around the same time, James Douglas, the governor of British Columbia, ordered an invasion of San Juan Island, but the captain of the Tribune, Jeffrey Hornby, took one look at the situation and realized if he took Pickett head on, it was likely to plunge Britain and the US into full out war. He defied Douglas's order and instead called for a meeting with Pickett. Hornby walked away from their parlay baffled. George Pickett seemed to him to be an idiot even by American standards. He was oblivious to how outgunned he was and to the fact that he'd positioned his army as sitting ducks for Hornby's guns. He didn't seem to know anything about politics either and made up some bullshit about San Juan being American territory and that he had orders from the president to go to war if need be. Pickett, Hornby concluded, was a moron. But morons, he knew, could be dangerous. If this yokel was truly willing to go to war over the island, he could make it happen by sheer moronic force of will. And Hornby wasn't happy to be seen as the adult in the room who started a war because of the intransigence of some American blowhard. 
Pickett, in contrast, left his meeting with Hornby feeling like any idiot would, smart. He felt that Hornby had given away his position when he informed him that his Navy had his guns trained on him, and brilliantly wrote to George Harney to say that he thought it would be smart to move his camp to somewhere less vulnerable. Harney responded, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, of course, and Pickett set up a new, less strategically useless redoubt at the south end of the island. Harney must have also realized at this point that Pickett was incompetent, and he sent reinforcements to San Juan along with Lieutenant Colonel Silas Casey to relieve him of command. By August, Casey had a defensible redoubt with 14 cannons and 460 soldiers at the ready. The English had added two more warships too, totaling 70 cannons and more than 2,000 men. By now, Hornby's boss, Rear Admiral Lambert Baines, had arrived on the scene and firmly ordered that nobody start a war over, quote, a squabble about a pig. But it looked like things were headed that way anyhow. Both British and American settlers began pouring onto San Juan Island, both to see what would happen and to set up bars and brothels for the teeming throngs of restless soldiers. Since the island was by now entirely divided, it was basically a lawless zone, and a new settlement known as San Juan Town popped up in the middle of the island to serve as one big tax-exempt red-light district for rowdy men from both nations. But the incredible thing about all this happening in 1859 is that although by the end of August there were thousands of soldiers committed to the cause of the pig war and the shadow of full-fledged war hovered above the island, nobody in charge in London or Washington had any idea it was happening. Until September, when word finally made it to England. When British authorities did get word of the brewing battle, they were informed that Pickett had told Hornby that the American president was behind him. So they then sent word to Washington, D.C. to ask said president what he meant by that. It was the first that James Buchanan and his secretary of state, Lewis Cassigan, had heard of any of it. President Buchanan immediately dispatched the commanding general of the army, Winfield Scott, to the scene to de-escalate things. Scott struck an arrangement with Admiral Baines to allow the establishment of a small British camp on the north end of the island to reduce the number of American troops to match them in the south and to remove that fucking stooge George Pickett from the scene entirely. For the next 12 years, San Juan Island sat under joint military occupation in a state of Cold War that grew warmer over time. Neither the American nor the British soldiers had much to do other than get drunk and go whoring, which eventually they ended up doing together. Since there was basically no real law enforcement on the island and no way to collect taxes or duties, the civilian population swelled with libertarian farmers and merchant smugglers alike. With the outbreak of the Civil War, the American side winnowed in numbers, while the Hudson's Bay Company slowly broke down its stakes and left the area. The Pig War is an odd historical footnote, a story you can happily hear told by park rangers as an amusing anecdote if you go to visit San Juan Island today. But there are two aspects to it that are actually surprisingly important and which get a lot less attention. One is how it ended, because the Pig War is an important event in the history of international law. 
We talked about this a bit back in the episode, What's So Funny About Peaceship and Understanding. But if you don't want to go back and listen to that, what's important to know is that after the American Civil War ended in 1865, relations between Britain and the U.S. fell apart, and it looked like the two nations were headed for war. Luckily, neither of them wanted to fight, so they came up with a pretty novel solution, international arbitration. Secretary of State Hamilton Fish, grandchild of the best-named constant character ever, Captain Preserved Fish III from Our Whales Fish, suggested that the countries give themselves over to a neutral third party, Kaiser Wilhelm I. At issue were a number of important disagreements, most notably charges by the Americans that the British had violated their neutrality during the Civil War, supplying the Confederates illegally with ships that had harassed and sunk American merchant marines. But among the less severe matters was the negotiation of ownership of San Juan Island, which the Kaiser eventually gave to the United States. The British decamped in 1871 in one of the first acts of international law that set the precedent for the formation of the League of Nations and then the United Nations down the road. The other important thing that gets glossed over about the pig war is how it actually began. I mean, other than the shooting of the pig that provided its name. It goes back to what went through William Harney's head when he saw the American flag over the island. Because... Really, it was Harney and Pickett who were chiefly responsible for taking a domestic matter about a pig to the brink of war, and it's possible they did so just because they were nationalists who hated the British. Harney, in particular, really did hate the British, but he also really liked slavery. Unlike Pickett, who infamously got his ass kicked at the Battle of Gettysburg and again at the Battle of New Bern, Harney was a bit more ambivalent about the rise of the Confederacy and refused to join Robert E. Lee when given the option. But he was from Tennessee and had gained notoriety earlier in his life when he had beaten an enslaved woman to death in St. Louis. Fun guy. Abraham Lincoln didn't trust him to fight for the Union and refused to give him a commission. After the war, General George McClellan, who had been commander of the Union forces until he failed to take out Robert E. Lee after Antietam, started telling a story. McClellan had gone to West Point with Pickett, Pickett graduated last in his class, and he'd been on an army survey mission of the Oregon Territory towards the beginning of the Pig War. McClellan told people that Harney and Pickett had purposely stoked the conflict, hoping that if they drew the United States into war with Britain, it would unify the country and prevent the Civil War. Later on, Pickett's widow, the author LaSalle Corbell Pickett, said the same thing. But Colonel Granville Haller, who commanded McClellan's guard, had a different theory. Haller was stationed at Fort Townsend, 15 miles south of San Juan Island on what is now mainland Washington state, when the Pig War broke out. He and all the other troops at the fort were among the reinforcements sent by General Harney to back up George Pickett and man the American camp. On January 16, 1896, well after Harney and Pickett were both dead, Haller gave a speech to the Loyal Legion at the Tacoma Hotel in which he directly contradicted McKellen's conspiracy theory with his own. 
According to Holler, Harney and Pickett had conspired to start a war with England, subordinating himself and General Silas Casey, whose cool heads got in their way and purposely antagonizing the Hudson's Bay Company. But Holler, a strong supporter of the Union and a vocal abolitionist, said that Harney and Pickett wanted war with England for exactly the opposite reason than McClellan supposed. That if they could force the United States into war with England, the South could secede successfully while the North was distracted. If Holler was right, that would make the Pig War the true beginning of the Civil War. Before Fort Sumter, before Harper's Ferry. And the first victim of that war, a pig. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. There are so many more stupid wars left to talk about. A conspicuous percentage of which, like the pig war, involve animals. 
Like in 1925, when an unleashed dog wandered across the border between Bulgaria and Greece, triggering a series of clashes that led to approximately 200 dead and Greece occupying a Bulgarian town, and only stopped there because of intervention by the League of Nations. There have been a number of bizarre skirmishes over various marine life, like the Turbo War, that's turbo as in the fish, between Canada and Spain in the mid-90s, the Cod Wars between the UK and Iceland, which flared up repeatedly between 1952 and 1976, and, strangest of all, the Lobster War between France and Brazil in the early 60s, which saw the two erstwhile allies deploying large parts of their air forces and navies over the question of whether the eponymous crustaceans counted as living in the ocean or on the seafloor. Unlike the other animal-based wars, the Emu War wasn't waged over Emu, but against them, with the Royal Australian Artillery engaging them in a series of battles which the Emus definitively won. In 1839, France erected a naval blockade against Mexico over vandalism done to a French bakery in Mexico City in what came to be called the Pastry War. The War of the Bucket was fought over, yes, that's right, a bucket. The Ashanti Empire of what is now southern Ghana went to war with the United Kingdom when the colonial governor Sir Frederick Mitchell Hodgson attempted to sit on the golden stool which served as the literal seat of power for the Ashanti. They kicked the UK's butt and secured de facto independence until the formation of Ghana in 1957 in the War of the Golden Stool. My favorite stupid war short, the medieval military equivalent of an O. Henry story, is when Scotland launched a raid on the English city of Durham in 1349. Scotland had lost the Battle of Neville's Cross in 1346, and the Scottish King David II had been taken prisoner. But in 1349, the Scottish sensed that England was weak and distracted and returned to seize Durham. What they hadn't anticipated is that the reason England seemed weak and distracted was that it had just caught the Black Death. And at Durham, the Scottish soldiers caught it too. When they returned north, it killed a quarter of the country. There are dozens of good stories about wars like this, wars begun over trifles or concluded as follies, but I am trying my best to not tell every story in five hour and a half long chunks, so I'm going to give you one last war to chew on, one of the most ridiculous wars of them all for reasons that are pretty nearly unique to it, the War of the League of Cambrai. This one is more complicated than any pig war or emu war. In fact, it is the complications that make it worth lampooning. So, follow the bouncing ball with me. 1508, Venice. Ah, Venice. Romantic, beautiful, progressive, idyllic Venice. Is there a better place in all the world to hang your hat? In 1508? Most definitely, because the Republic of Venice was surrounded by enemies on all sides, the most determined of which was Pope Julius II. Julius had chosen his name after the not terribly popish Emperor Julius Caesar, and his reign really was modeled after his namesake. 
He was a hard-drinking expansionist conqueror, nicknamed the Warrior Pope. After he died in 1513, we will get there, Erasmus of Rotterdam published a satire that summed up the life, works, and thought of the warrior pope, Julius Excluded from Heaven, in which the pontiff argues and threatens St. Peter to try to get himself into heaven, defending his drinking, warring, corruption, and pedophilia by saying he had the power to forgive his own sins. When St. Peter is unconvinced by Julius's arguments, Julius walks away from the pearly gates with a promise that he'll be back after he raises an army to invade heaven and dethrone God. So that gives you an idea of Pope Julius II. In 1508, he was brooding over the Romagna, a region of northern Italy that had been controlled by Caesar Borgia, who was both a former cardinal and the illegitimate son of a previous pope. But he had been dethroned in 1503, and the lords of Romagna had asked Venice to take over the area. Pope Julius II, however, felt that he should rule over Romagna, and had been trying to work out how to do so since he came to office. He'd threatened Venice, which had responded with a potential compromise, giving papal control to Romagna's port cities, but keeping the rest of the region for itself. So he'd threatened again, this time louder, and Venice had blinked, giving over a number of cities to Rome, but that wasn't enough either. So, Julius told Maximilian I, King of the Romans, that he should destroy Venice for him. If, said Julius, Maximilian could get through Venice to Rome, he would elevate him to Holy Roman Emperor. So, in 1507, Max had hatched a plot. He told Venice he was just going to pass through to meet the Pope. Nothing to worry about. Ignore the massive army. Venice hadn't bought the ruse. The two went to war and Venice had repelled the empire by the end of the year, even taking some of it for themselves. Well, that's enough of that, said Pope Julius. He called on all Christian nations to band with him and wipe the Venetian Republic off the face of the earth. He produced a map of what the region would look like once Venice had been defeated. Maximilian would get the northeast, including Verona, Vicenza, and Padua. Louis XII could take the northwest for France, Ferdinand II would eat the heel of the Italian boot for Spain, and the Papal States, naturally, would get the rest. Louis, Ferdinand, and Maximilian took a look at the map and thought it seemed like a pretty good deal, so together they formed the titular League of Cambrai and declared war. So far, this is standard medieval politics, a bunch of nations banding together to seize their neighbors' lands but we're getting close to the first weird turn. It was May of 1509, and the war was on in earnest. The French invaded Venice from the northwest, where they met with a fearsome army under the legendary command of Bartolomeo de Alviano and Niccolo de Pitigliano. Bart and Nick were both accomplished military strategists, and they were cousins to boot. They also didn't get along. They had very different ideas of how to fight France, and neither was willing to back down. Bart advanced on Louis's army, hoping to end his advance at Agnadello, a feat he could only hope to accomplish if Nick's forces joined him. So he wrote his cousin and requested they come meet up with him. But Nick thought that Bart should back down and meet him to the east. No, you come meet up with me, he ordered. 
Bart didn't listen, and his outnumbered army was massacred by the French at Agnadello. When word of the disastrous defeat got back to Nick's army, they panicked. Most of them abandoned, and Nick had to retreat to within the walled city of Treviso. With neither of the cousins on the field, the Northeast was left undefended too. So Emperor Maximilian stepped into the game, stomping over Padua, Verona, and Vincenza without resistance. Pope Julius not only took the opportunity to march on Romagna, he went a step further and issued a papal bull excommunicating everyone in Venice, the entirety of Venice. This spooked Alfonso d'Este, the Duke of Ferrara and husband of Lucretia Borgia, who then joined the League against Venice. The Spanish made their entrance, joining Maximilian to put down a revolt in Padua. By November, the Venetian army was all but entirely defeated, and the Senate came to the table to negotiate peace with Pope Julius. Julius, true to his caricature, was an asshole about it. He not only demanded the Romagna, but that Venice relinquish authority over all Catholics in the whole country, and compensate the Papal States for the cost of the war, too. With little choice, Venice acceded to Julius's demands, but secretly, the Senate agreed to betray the terms as soon as they got the opportunity. But forget about that. The war was over. Venice defeated. The Pope triumphant. Ferdinand of Spain backed down. Emperor Maximilian of the Holy Roman Empire backed down. King Louis XII of France did not back down. He continued to annex more Venetian territory along with Deste and the Ferrarians. Which brings us to the first confusing turn in the most confused war of all time. In the summer of 1510, concerned about Louis's continued advance and hopeful that he might be able to seize Ferreira, Julius II made an abrupt and surprising about-face. The Pope, who had allied with France to wage war on Venice, now joined Venice to wage war on France. It didn't go well for the new alliance. Julius called upon the Swiss Guard to take care of King Louis while he dealt with Duke Este, who, in typical popish style, he excommunicated. But the newly hellbound Este managed to destroy the Venetian army, and when the Swiss Guard got to Lombardy, Louis simply bribed them into turning back around. With France and Ferreira trampling all over Venice and straight towards the Papal States, Julius called for all Christian nations, who had until recently included France and excluded Venice, to rejoin a new fight with Venice and against France. Sure thing, said King Ferdinand and Emperor Maximilian of Spain and the Holy Roman Empire. They turned around and headed back for Venice this time to fight against the French they had just gotten done fighting with. But that wasn't all. The Swiss, no longer able to be bribed away, also came back on the scene. Then, King Henry VIII of England was like, oh shit, are we going to war with France? Deal me in. And then, King James IV of Scotland was like, oh shit, are we going to war with England? Deal me in. And he joined up with France. So, just to reiterate, the war, which had begun in 1508 as Venice versus the Pope, 
France, the Holy Roman Empire, and Spain had totally reshuffled and drawn cards, so that by 1511, it was France, Scotland, and Ferrera against the Pope, Venice, Spain, the Holy Roman Empire, Switzerland, and England. The War of the League of Cambrai had dissolved and been replaced like a bankruptcy, slowly, then all at once, into the War of the Holy League. France was totally outmanned by the newly formed Holy League, but King Louis had a single ace up his sleeve, his nephew, Gaston de Fall, a young and brilliant military commander who came to be known by the intimidating sobriquet, the Thunderbolt of Italy. The Thunderbolt managed to defeat the Papists, the Venetians, the Swiss, and the Spanish, and for a brief moment it seemed France would run the table. But then Gaston's horse stumbled during a cavalry charge. He fell off, got up, and was promptly shot in the face. Without the Thunderbolt, France couldn't win. The Swiss took back Milan, the Spanish retook Florence, and King Louis, facing facts, withdrew back across the Alps. Venice was saved. Hooray! cried Venice. Not so fast! cried Pope Julius. Hey, Emperor Max, he said, now that France is out of the picture, why don't we just go back to Plan A and take all that stuff we wanted? You're the boss, responded the Holy Roman Emperor. Venice protested, of course, but Pope Julius again threatened. And get ready, because we are almost to Bizarre Turn number three, right after Bizarre Turn 2.5. The Republic of Venice, which had been invaded by France and the Papal States before joining forces with the Papal States to eject France, was now being threatened by the Papal States. If it didn't accept Julius's terms, he said, he would create a new alliance to attack Venice. With France! <laughs> but that didn't happen! Because before it could, Venice, who, remember, had been fighting France and the Pope, before it began fighting France with the Pope, now aligned with France to fight the Pope. The first phase had been called the War of the League of Cambrai. Then there'd been the War of the Holy League. By the third phase, nobody even bothered giving it a catchy title, because who could keep anything straight at this point? France crossed back over the Alps, this time to join Venice, Ferreira, and Scotland to defeat the Papal States, which were still joined by Switzerland, Spain, the Holy Roman Empire, the Swiss-liberated Duchy of Milan, and England. While King Louis had the French army in Venice, King Henry invaded France, so King James invaded England. He was promptly killed at the Battle of Flodden, knocking Scotland out of the war. Pope Julius died of fever, and his successor, Pope Leo X, seemed a little at a loss for what he was doing. The Spanish were on the ball and pushed the Republic of Venice back almost to the walls of the city of Venice itself, before realizing that they didn't have the boats to keep on. On the brink of success, Spain turned around and left. King Henry, getting the sense that there was nothing in this for him after all, gave up, made peace with France, and went back across the channel. King Louis died, 
and his son-in-law, Francis I, became king of France. Ferdinand II died, and Charles V became king of Spain. Francis and Charles made peace, and Spain was officially out. Francis marched back into Italy and defeated the Swiss, and kept on pushing until finally, in 1516, the new Pope Leo made peace with Francis too. Emperor Maximilian tried to take on Venice and France alone for a hot minute, but it didn't work, and the Holy Roman Empire gave up on their claims, finally ending the war. It was the end of 1516, and Italy had been under siege for more than eight full years. More than 10 countries had been involved, and most of them had changed sides at least one time. The sides were so porous, in fact, that it's kind of difficult to say who betrayed whom at any particular moment. Because the sides and battles were so tangled and confused and the records so poorly kept, it's hard to get a solid sense of how many people died in the course of this madness. 10,000 Scots, including King James, of course, died at Flodden alone, and that was the war's smallest front. I've tried to do some rough math, and I think it's safe to say that there were at least 100,000 direct casualties. When the dust had all finally cleared, the prize for all that death, betrayal, and confusion was plain for everyone to see. The borders of Venice, Spain, France, England, Scotland, the Holy Roman Empire, Ferrera, Milan, Navarre, Switzerland, and the Papal States hadn't budged an inch. But at least, at long last, Italy was at peace. For three years, and then they did the whole thing over again. God damn it! That is the stupidest war ever fought. Music for today's episode provided by Epidemic Sound. It's looking like a tough time for podcasts, so if you're interested in making this one better, I've got three groveling asks for you. First off, and most importantly, tell a friend. The primary way this show gets new listeners, practically the only way this show gets new listeners, is by folks like you telling folks like past you about it. You can also leave us a rating and review on your podcast app of choice. Lastly, you can sign up to support The Constant financially by heading over to patreon.com slash The Constant. In exchange, you'll get early and ad-free versions of new episodes, as well as monthly bonus content. For the next episode, I've got a really cool surprise, which I'm excited to blindside you with. So, stay tuned. Until then, from Chicago, Illinois, home to the Elks National Memorial, honoring the thousand-plus society members who died in World War I, and I know that's not very interesting or funny, but most Chicago-related war anecdotes are less so, this has been The Constant. <laughs>